Welcome to this podcast from Jams. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the emotional and psychological dimensions of dispute resolution, including virtual mediations and the wrinkles they've added to that landscape. With us are Stephen Solmeyer, a lawyer, clinical psychologist, and mediator, and Judge Lynn Dury, also a mediator who spent 21 years as a Superior Court judge in California. So thank you both for joining us. Uh, Judge Dury, you and both Stephen have been speaking and writing on the emotional and psychological dimensions of ADR for a while. How did your partnership first begin? Our partnership began about 15 years ago when I was the family law judge on the Marin County Superior Court. And I realized I needed to do something to help settle the cases. And I knew about settling cases, but I didn't know about settling family law cases. And I don't know how it happened, but Steve showed up in my life and volunteered with me week after week, sitting down with stressed out parents and helping them settle their family law disputes. And we became good friends. And he has taught me so much about psychology and settling cases. Steve, in, in previous talks in, in articles, you and uh, Judge Dury both have discussed the differences between the legal and emotional case. Can you help us understand the difference? Sure. Well, the position that we've arrived at really from experience is that every dispute and even every negotiation has, quote unquote, a legal case and an emotional case. And what we mean by that is that you can look at, let's say, a a mediation that's currently in court from a legal lens. And if you do it that way, you're seeing the way a judge would see it, the way a lawyer would see it in terms of causes of action and the kinds of evidence that you need to establish your case and so forth. All of that's what we call the legal case. The emotional case is what does the case actually mean emotionally and psychologically to the participants? And we see that often these two have nothing in common. So for example, on the surface, if you just look at the legal case, uh, let's say a copyright infringement case, it looks like it's about a question of whether or not somebody copied somebody's copyrighted work. Mm -hmm. But from the emotional case point of view, it may be that in fact, they hate each other. This actually happened in my first copyright case. This was uh, uh, Saul Zantz versus John Fogarty of Credence Clearwater Revival. Mm. John was sued for copyright infringement. It wasn't about that. It was about that Zantz hated him and and Fogarty hated Zantz. Mm. That's really what it was about. So we found it to be useful to make these distinctions, to differentiate the legal case from the emotional case, because they require different tools, different languages, different skills to work with and resolve each one. Mm. And Judge Dury, how about you? How do you see this? How have you seen this difference sort of manifest itself in in the real world? I had a case last week that is a perfect example of this. There was a um, plaintiff who was suing someone for a highly charged sexual assault. And it was really clear that the evidence did not back up her allegation. So as a judge, if I were hearing the case, I'd be thinking about evidence and what the various witnesses might be testifying about and what her likelihood of success might be. 
But that wasn't the thing that was going to settle the case. The thing that was going to settle the case was listening to what she had to say and how this event, as she perceived it, had affected her life. And that was an easy thing for me to talk about, her emotions, her reactions, how she was doing now, what she was doing to recover. And in that way, we were able to settle the case. Whereas if I just focused on, as Steve said, the causes of action, the legal case, she would have hated me and we would never have settled it. Hmm. Well, lawyers are not trained psychologists, but but can what can lawyers do to prepare their, their clients for these two kinds of cases? Stephen? Well, I don't think you need to be a trained psychologist in order to work with these concepts, but I do think you need to be cognizant of them. And I think you need to do a little introspection to assess your own comfort level with dealing with these issues. In my experience, most lawyers uh, are sort of overtrained with their rational minds, but undertrained with their emotional minds and tend to uh, like to be in a position of control, in a position of uh, being in familiar terrain, familiar territory, and uh, don't want to tread where they feel less than fully confident. So to overcome that barrier to the extent it exists, I think it's important to become familiar with some of these concepts, with the language that is necessary, the sort of logic that's necessary to deal with the emotional and psychological issues, just to develop one's comfort zone so that one can work in an area with, in that area with confidence. And Judge Jury, obviously this is super important for mediators. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's important for everyone who's in the room, right? It's important for the mediator, it's important for the lawyer, and it's important for the parties. And just like Steve said, it's it's true about lawyers and judges who are acting as mediators, and it's true of lawyers who are acting who are acting as lawyers in a mediation. We we're not trained as psychologists, and it makes us feel that we're not qualified, but you know what? We're all human beings who have had our experiences and we care about the people who are coming to us in mediation. So if you're a mediator, you wanna welcome that emotional expression because that's probably gonna be the key to settling the case. If you're the lawyer in a mediation, same. I mean, you're going to be with your client all day long. It's going to be a super hard day for your client. So be willing to be with your client through that hard day. A lot of times participants in mediation are shocked that it's such an emotional experience for them. But of course, it's an emotional experience because something bad happened to them. It was so bad that it caused them to be involved in a lawsuit. And here finally is a day of resolution. It's going to be a hard day. But hopefully the mediation process is going to help them get through to the other end and find some healing. Mm. You both have discussed ego defenses in the past. Stephen, can you explain what they are and how they can impede a successful mediation? Sure, I can, but I think it's important to recognize that the ego defenses show up in different ways depending on whether we're talking about the legal case or the emotional case. So let me lay a little bit of a foundation before I answer your question directly. One of the things that Lynn and I have found, again, through experience, is that there is no legal solution to an emotional problem. And what we see is that people come to us in mediation with the legal case and the emotional case conflated. 
that in itself is an example of an ego defense. And I'll, I'll unpack that in a moment. Hmm. But the way it can show up, for example, is let's say it's a divorce mediation. And I'll, I'll just give you a line that somebody actually said to me in a divorce mediation. The husband was really angry with his wife because she'd had an affair. And he said, I'm not paying her a diamond spousal support because she had the affair. That is an example of the conflation of the legal and the emotional cases. He's talking about a legal issue, spousal support, but he's coming from his emotions, right? She doesn't deserve anything. And so I asked him a question, which was, well, let's say hypothetically your wife were willing to agree to take zero in spousal support. Would you feel less betrayed? Mm. Well, uh, no, but uh, at least then she'd know how I feel, how hurt I am. Well, maybe there's a, a more direct way to let her know that if that's important to you. Why don't you tell her? So that then opens up the emotional case. And so you can see that there's some resistance there to going into that pain and that humiliation uh, of having discovered that his wife was cheating on him. And so the defense was, I'm not going to feel my feelings. I'm going to focus on the legal case, right? This is sometimes referred to as an intellectual defense, which is one of the classic ego defenses, right? So in, in order to answer your question, you have to, you have to ask yourself, well, which lens am I looking through? Because if people are addressing the legal case, sometimes they're employing ego defenses and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just analyzing the legal case in the way it needs to be. So I think we tend to see these ego defenses showing up when these two cases are conflated and they can show up in the following ways. One is the, is the intellectual defense. Another one is what's called projection. Projection is when there's something we hate about ourselves, something we dislike about ourselves so intensely that we have cut it off, we've split it off, we've repressed it into the unconscious. And the problem is that things that are repressed don't like to stay repressed. Freud called this the return of the repressed. And so we end up seeing in others, projecting onto others, these split off parts of ourselves. So we may take a great dislike to our next door neighbor and see them as being bullying or being insensitive when these secretly may be things we believe about ourselves. Next thing we know, we end up in a boundary dispute and we're in court or we're in mediation and we believe these things about them, not seeing that actually we're trying to defend ourselves from what it feels like to believe this to be true about ourselves. Can I just underscore what a profound point that is that Steve is making? And that's the kind of thing that it's so useful for mediators <clears throat> and participants in mediation to appreciate is that and it's painful and it's hard and but it's that often that thing that we're seeing in others we're critical of it or we're noticing it because it's something that is true within ourselves that we're not really seeing mm. yeah i was going to ask you judge Duria, if, if there are strategies available to mitigate against these defenses i mean what i hear both of you saying is at minimum sort of recognizing, again, the difference between the actual legal case and the emotional case. I'm going to answer this, but Steve, when I'm done, I want you to answer it because you know so much more about this than I do. But one of the things that I've noticed in myself 
is if I'm in a mediation and someone's upset and they say something to me like, you're not being fair or you've made up your mind already or you're being judgmental or you're believing what the other, something that challenges my neutrality and would cause me to maybe react. I have now learned that I don't need to react. That's just my ego that's getting involved. And the thing that's important for me is just to practice awareness in that moment and to remember to keep my heart and my mind on the person who's speaking and find out why that seems important to them or how they feel like they've been wrong rather rather than just reacting because my ego has been hurt and I feel I need to defend myself. Steve, what about you? How do you answer this question? Well, I, following right on what you're saying, Lynn, there's a lot of sort of technical ego defenses that uh, would take some unpacking like projective identification and transference. And I don't want to take the time to get into those, but uh, I think Lynn hit it on the head when she was saying that the defenses are to protect ourselves from feeling bad about ourselves, feeling painful emotions, basically feeling anything that we believe we can't tolerate. Hmm. That's really the common denominator, I think, with these various ego defenses. So framed that way, uh, I think it makes it a lot easier to see that what's going on is people are scared. They're afraid that they're going to feel something they can't handle. Typically, there's two sort of broad categories of these kinds of defenses. And one is, I'm not going to feel, so I'm just going to just be in my head, just live from my neck up. The other way is what I sort of call the hysterical defense, which is I'm going to feel my feelings. I'm not going to feel my feelings by pretending to feel them. So I might seem to be very feeling, very emotional and loud and expressive. Uh, and in fact, I'm not feeling my feelings at all. Mm -hmm. It can look like it to the untrained eye. But bottom line is people don't want to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They don't want to feel things they can't tolerate. And in a sense, if they do, they kind of collapse in a, in a sort of a regressed way to how they were when they were two or three years old and were overwhelmed by feelings they didn't have the capacity to tolerate. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they're trying to do, shore themselves up, strengthen their ego so that they can sort of hold it together and not disintegrate into their worst nightmare of who they secretly believe they are. You both have stressed the need for lawyers and their clients to develop their negative capacity. So first of all, let's define that. What is, what is negative capacity, Stephen? Broadly defined, it's the ability to tolerate the intolerable. So I was just talking about how when we're very little, we are exposed to feelings that we cannot tolerate. Babies don't have that capacity. Toddlers don't have that capacity. So we develop various kinds of defenses and filters so that we don't have to uh, fully feel those feelings. Uh, negative capacity is something we have to develop so that when we are exposed to these feelings, because as Lynn was pointing out, like the sexual assault case, people actually are feeling some intense feelings, fully or partially, and we're going to resonate with that. We're in the same interpersonal field, and we want to resonate. We want to connect empathically. But if, if it triggers our own defenses, our own fears about what we can tolerate, we're not going to really be able to attune with that person. We're not going to really be able to be in empathic contact with that person. So it really behooves us to develop the internal capacity 
to stay present, to stay open to whatever's arising in us. And so we call that negative capacity. It really comes from John Keats, owed on a Grecian urn. He called it negative capability. And it really, there's a several components to it. One is mindfulness. You have to be able to be aware of what's arising in you, and you have to be aware of how that's impacting you. Secondly, you have to develop uh, what Eric Boglin called uh, therapeutic distance, which is the ability to maintain a certain amount of reflective distance, I think was the term he used, reflective distance, which is the ability to reflect on what is arising in you. So there's a certain almost subject-object distance, and that, that provides a little sense of a buffer. Mm-hmm. So sometimes in mediation, people are upset. Sometimes people will start yelling and it can be very emotional. And if you're a lawyer or a mediator in that room, you might think, I have to get out of here. This is awful. I want to leave or I want to yell back. It kind of triggers that fight or flight thing. Steve is the one who taught me about expanding your negative capacity. And I often in a mediation will have a post-it in front of me that says, expand your negative capacity. And for me, what it means is reminding myself that I can handle this, Hmm. that I'm big enough to be able to handle someone else's terrible emotional expression that I do not need to react to it. And Steve, I remember the exact moment when you taught this to me, and it was during a family law mediation with a know-it-all mediator. Do you remember that and what you said to me then? Uh, I Vaguely, but go on. It was, we had a very confusing case and there were two sides and they were diametrically opposed and we took a recess and the other mediator says, I think I've got it all figured out. And and do you remember what you said? I remember what he said. He said, um, she's lying. And then you turned to me and said, well, Steve, what do you think? And I said, I'm confused. And that's negative capacity, right? Is being able to not feel like you, you need to know all the answers that you can be confused and that makes you open and curious mm-hmm. to hear more instead of frustrated that you know you're trying to get a different you're trying to get a certain solution based on what you think the facts are yeah I, I was about to ask as a mediator can you help set the stage for more negative capacity in the room do you feel like you can have an impact on other people's negative capacity Totally. Because one of the things that you're doing as a mediator is repackaging something you're hearing in one room so that it can be received in a better light when you explain in the other room, you know, for example, you know, in this room, you think that you're acting in good faith and the other side is being unreasonable because your offer is good and you think the demand is too high. But you know what's crazy is in the other room, they think exactly the same thing. And so we're two sides of the same coin. I want to touch on virtual mediations and their impact on the emotional and psychological challenges of ADR. Uh, Stephen, what have you noticed over the last couple of years where virtual mediations have really become the norm? I haven't seen that much of a difference. I, I certainly prefer in-person mediations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of bringing people together in joint session and 
it's certainly a lot easier in person to read body language and, and really just to, to feel into the interpersonal field with what's happening. But we, we managed to do fairly well in the virtual realm. And, the, you know, that we still are faced with the same kinds of challenges we've just been speaking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, why, why does it matter, whether you're virtually or not? Why does it matter if you make this distinction between the legal case and the emotional case? And, and really, the bottom line reason, I think, is because that's what people really care about. They care about the emotions first. They care mm-hmm. about the emotional case first. Can I give you an example of that? Absolutely. So um, this is a family law case, another one. And husband was living in the family residence, wife had moved out. And when we pointed out, hey, you you cannot afford, we had a financial neutral, you can't afford to stay in this house. You couldn't afford it before when you were one family. Now that you're split into two, you certainly can't afford it. And husband's reaction was, I am not moving out of the house. Don't (laughs) mention it again. Yeah, but, but take a look at this spreadsheet. I'm not talking about the house. Don't mention it again. And actually, it was the financial neutral who said, help me understand what's important to you about staying in the house. And he said, well, that's where she's going to come back to me. Mm -hmm. So you could hear a pin drop in that room. So wife was very, very compassionate and kind and acknowledged that and said, you know, with all the compassion in my heart, that's not what's happening. Not coming back. And so he was finally able to overcome that emotional ego defense and allow himself to grieve and he shed tears. Hmm. But that's what he was defending against. And then once once they'd had that missing conversation and he could actually allow himself to grieve, that was it. That was the resolution of the emotional case. Then he took a look at the spreadsheet and said, Oh my God, <laughs> I can't afford to stay in this house. We've got to sell it. Right. He had uh, he had to first uh uh, settle the emotional kiss. Judge Dury, how, how about you? Have you noticed any changes um, to, to the emotional and psychological dimensions of cases in the virtual sessions? I, I have. I mean, in addition to what Steve has talked about, you know, as we all know, Zoom or virtual mediations have pluses and minuses. The pluses are sometimes People in their own homes, you know, when their cats are there and they're doing the laundry at the break and kids are running around the background, feel more comfortable and you can sometimes settle into the mediation faster. But sometimes as a mediator, you have to work harder because you're not in the same room. They can't feel the love that you're trying to convey to them. Sometimes their video is off or, you know, Wi-Fi is terrible. And so a lot of times... I can't see them, but I know that they can see me. And so I am working harder, you know, to make sure that I'm looking into the the camera and I'm making sure that I'm projecting myself, even though I can't, I'm not getting, you know, the feeling back from them. I'm trying harder to show that I'm there for them and I'm, I'm, I care about them. And then other things too, that, you know, we're so used to sitting in front of the computer all day but that's not the same as living your life. And so just being mindful, like let's all take 10 minutes and go outside and get some fresh air because mm-hmm. we're not in a room together and we need to see some natural light. So little things like that um, have made a difference. Yeah, I suppose uh, it's harder to make a connection with certain parties. And I, and I take it the strategies for building sort of the emotional resilience that we've been talking about are, are, would apply to uh, any any kind of mediation, whether it's virtual or 
in person. Yes, but like, for example, you know, there's such a thing as a Zoom room where everyone's in a room and you're looking at, you know, it looks like you're looking at them from the end of a conference room table, quite different from looking at them just from the shoulders up. And so you have to find a way to be able to connect in that room when you're like, I feel like you're sort of shouting at them. Oh, for sure. A major challenge indeed. I know there's a lot more to discuss, but let's leave it there. I want to thank our guests, Stephen Solmeyer and Judge Lynn Dury, for a fascinating conversation. You've been listening to a podcast from JAMS, the world's largest private alternative dispute resolution provider. Our guests have been Stephen Solmeyer and Judge Lynn Dury. For more information about JAMS, please visit www.jamsadr.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from JAMS.